We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I am Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, author of The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. I'm Erin Lowry, author of Broke Millennial and Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. I'm Stacey Tisdale, CEO of Mind Money Media, on-air financial journalist and author of The True Cost of Happiness. So the very first thing you can do today, pause the podcast, pull up a spreadsheet, pull all of your numbers. That's really what provides the information to create the attack plan. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Welcome to a special edition of Secrets of Wealthy Women. It's the time of year when a lot of us are thinking about how to get our money right. So we're bringing together three top financial experts to help you find the motivation to get and stay out of debt. Aaron Lowry, Jill Schlesinger, and Stacey Tisdale have all coped with debt themselves, and they say you can too. Here are their top tips on how to handle your debt. So, Stacey, you had an experience with debt due to an illness. Would you share that story? Actually, it was a, a few, just a few years ago. I had a health crisis that actually ended up in job loss. And I was in chronic and constant pain for about eight months. It was pretty debilitating. And um, just had to experience a severe shift in income by going on to disability. And at the time, I did not have the bandwidth or the energy to make lifestyle changes to adjust to that shift in income. And I, um, we were all, my family was also in an elder care situation where my father's health care was costing about $13,000 a month. And that led to a lot of um, cash flow paranoia. Mm-hmm. So I took on debt, which as a financial journalist, I had um, been conditioned that it was a bad thing. My personal attitudes about it were changing. But again, when you're faced with that kind of financial anxiety, I don't know what was worse, the pain or the financial anxiety. It was, you know, rather debilitating. So I had to um, really match my message. I had been telling people to, you know, things like their self-worth has nothing to do with their net worth and to make peace with their relationships with money through my work. And now I had to do it myself. So soon I realized that the content that I knew how to produce and the, you know, the, what I had learned about the media business that I could sell my own content. I could, you know, do what media outlets had been doing for me and own it myself. And that proved to be, a, you know, just where the path was leading. And then the opportunities and the cash flow followed. And then I was able to turn that around. Erin, you didn't have student loans yourself but your husband did. And you said that that affected you emotionally. What do you tell us about that? Well, I actually made my college decision purely based on graduating debt-free. So I say that I gave up going to my dream school in order to live my dream life because even at 18, kind of had the foresight that that was going to give me a lot more flexibility once I graduated. 
So to then fall in love with somebody who had student loans and understand that that meant they were going to play a role in my life and essentially be a barrier to achieving certain financial goals quickly, yeah, it was a a process to kind of have a reckoning with that. Fortunately, we were together eight years before we got married, so I had a very long time (laughs) to make my peace with it. And going into our marriage, I repositioned my entire thought process around it, and I started calling them our student loans as opposed to his student loans. And we did start attacking them as a team. How much loans? He had just over $51,000 when we got married. So we had more previous to that, but that's what his debt was when I started attacking them with him. And we got married in August of 2018, and we will be debt-free in February of 2020. Congrats. Congratulations. Thank you. Jill, how are women affected by credit card and auto loan debt? Well, I mean, I think that what we know is that the gender wage gap is pernicious in all aspects of a woman's life, right? And so when you have more debt to pay off, you are also then not contributing into a retirement account. And because you have less money in general to contribute to any household budget item, then you are, you know, that money that should be going to retirement is now going into debt. And we know that women's Uh, retirement accounts are basically a third of what men's are, sometimes half, sometimes worse than that. So, I mean, in some respects, I can't underscore enough how parity in wages would go a long way in helping individuals and families achieve their financial goals. And, you know, the other aspect of wage disparity that plays into a woman's long-term planning is that, of course, everyone knows we have a longer life expectancy, but when you don't earn as much money, that also means you're not going to qualify for as large a social security benefit. It also may mean that you have to work later into your life. And, you know, while men have a higher mortality rate, they die before women, women get sicker than men. They have what's called a higher morbidity rate. So you put this all together and you then lump credit card debt or any other kind of uh, higher interest debt than, say, a mortgage, and you see how so many women are feeling financially insecure as they get later in life into their 50s, 60s, and 70s. I think when it comes to things like debt, just to echo Jill's point, it's just everything's harder for women. I mean, the... um I was just reading the American Association of University Women found that women earning a bachelor's degree are going to leave college owing $3,000 more, $3, more in student loan debt than men. For African-American women, that's $8,000 more. So what do you got? You come out of college with more student loan debt, and then you have a wage gap. You have, I think, a quarter of all university students are parents, 71% are women. So then you have those child care costs. So when, I mean, the deck is so stacked against women that, of course, you know, when you look at the numbers, you're going, there's just higher debt levels across the board. And again, when you break those into socioeconomic differences between, you know, multicultural groups, that gets compounded. Despite all of this stuff, Women control most of the world's wealth. We control the majority of the world's wealth. We control the majority of the investable assets here in the United States. But when you look at the psychological and emotional toll that all of these 
you know, challenges have left us, we don't have that mindset. So, you know, debt impacts decision making. Debt impacts your health. We found uh, University of Northwestern researchers finding that you have higher uh, levels of anxiety, high blood pressure, a 20 percent higher chance of having a stroke when you have debt. So when you look at all of that that women are carrying, it's very hard for them to shift into the mindset to claim the debt that we, you know, to, to claim the wealth that we've created. But we think we should really be proud of ourselves. Coming up, advice on how to reduce debt from our personal finance experts. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. Erin, how did your husband's debt affect your relationship? It's hard, I think, to pinpoint one specific thing. I will say it brought us closer sooner in the conversation about money because we started talking about it before I was even writing about money professionally. This was just a conversation we were having. And it was an interesting way to kind of push my own assumptions about why people take on student loans, how people handle their debt, as well as for him, I think it was also a way to push on this idea of switching gender roles a little bit. I'm the breadwinner in our household. And he had a lot of guilt around this idea of bringing debt into our marriage and this feeling that I had made the sacrifice to go to this school based on coming out debt free and he was going to ruin all of that for me. And we kind, I kept kind of pushing, why is this feeling like almost this guilt, this almost sense of emasculation that you're feeling, where is that coming from? And that was a very big bonding experience. It wasn't a one-night conversation. This was years of us talking through this. And even to this day, I think certain things will flare up. For context, he's a public school teacher, so it's not like he's bringing in tons and tons of money in a way that maybe if he worked in tech or something like that. But that's not what's relevant, really, to what I was looking for in a partner and a husband. And I think that having those conversations were incredibly helpful. And I would also say it made us get on the same page so fast, even before we were married. We also have a prenup. So we were then forced to also have incredibly in-depth financial conversations. We knew everything about each other's financial lives before we got married. So there were absolutely no surprises. And it was an easy way for us to then become a team about your money and whether you want to bank separately or jointly to each their own. But I do think if you're going to partner up with somebody, there has to be an element of team mentality there. What did your family say about the debt, right? Because they knew you had worked so hard not to have any. You know, I think at first there was a little bit of a like, oh, okay. And then there was just a quick realization of, frankly, it was going to be rare that I found somebody who was in the same I would say, privileged situation I was in, even though some of the reason I was debt-free was because I had academic scholarships. The other was that my parents could also help pay for 50% of my college education, and not everyone is like that. What did you do, you and your husband? Like, What are the steps you took to get out of that debt? 
Well, the first thing we did was made an attack plan. So we faced all the numbers. We had down every single lender, the interest rates, the principal balances, and the minimum monthly payments. And then we decided to debt avalanche. So we focused first on the highest interest rate debt, which also happened to be a private student loan. And that's the one that I personally felt strongest about getting gone first because he is a public school teacher. He does have a lot of federal loans. They could be on an income-driven repayment plan. We could have also tried for public service loan forgiveness. I was like, listen, we have the money. I just want these gone. I don't want to mess around with the possibility of you getting rejected or something tripping up along the way. And then we decided to assess our other short, medium, and long-term financial goals and see how much money we wanted to put towards those and how much extra we could also put towards student loans. And he picks up every overtime opportunity he has at work, and that money goes towards student loans, and then unexpected income to iron, 50% goes to emergency, 50% goes to student loans. Jill, what tips would you give us if we have credit card debt? I say uh, go for the Aaron Lowry method. I know that there are some financial people out there who will say just get rid of the little ones, the little loans, regardless of the interest rate. I think that is just baloney. Uh, You go for the highest interest rate first because that's going to get you the biggest bang for your hard-earned buck. And so you go highest interest to lowest interest. And you know, it does mean that you have to understand where the rest of your money is going. And that's just a very disgusting thought for many people. So much easier now. I mean, when I got into the business of financial planning 30 years ago, you know, you said to people, well, get start a spreadsheet or a yellow pad of paper, write down everything you, you spend money on. I mean, that was hard. Now it's easy. So use financial technology to your advantage, track what you're spending, and then all you're trying to do is not necessarily create a budget. In my, you know, in my experience, just dealing with real people, whether they're calling into my podcast or dealing with people who just I used to deal with as clients, it's hard to live by a budget. You have to be incredibly disciplined. You have to be Aaron and you have to be Stacy and you have to like have a mantra that you can do it. Most people are not going to do that. So all I ask is just tell me where your money's going. Just do it for 90 days. Figure it out. And you will come to the conclusion that probably it is more beneficial to you and your long-term financial security to do with a little bit less on the variable side of, you know, hey, I don't have to go out to lunch today, or I'm going to do cook in this many times, or I'm going to pull back on the gym membership because I'm really not using it, and redirect that money and put that money towards debt pay down. And it's it's not rocket science. When I was a financial planner 150 years ago, I would always uh, sort of wonder at this, that people who were came in in terrible financial straits often ended up being fantastic savers. Because once they got the discipline, once they found the religion, they said, oh, my God, this is great. And so the $500 that was going to pay down my student loan debt every month, that just got shifted over here and it went into my 401k plan. That's pretty amazing. So they had the discipline of the of the action, of the money coming out of the discretionary, the stuff that you have control over, and pushing it into something else. The goals part was is so critical to that. It is, you know, boring and scary unless you make that, you know, visceral connection to, you know, your money just being an extension of the life that you want to live. So that's, you know, ground zero is starting, you know, figure out what you're planning for, you know, but not just oh, I want to save $500, you know, by next year. Your goals really have to be, you know, smart, measurable, attainable. But it's, you know, much more, you know, what do you want your life to look like in five years? What do you want your life to look like in 10 years? What's, 
what legacy do you want to leave your children? What steps do you have to take to match that message? And then it becomes, it comes from a different place and it's just a lot easier to stick to once you get a clear picture of your goals. A lot of women are burdened with medical debt. They're more likely to have medical debt. And Stacey, you've been through this yourself. What options do we have? You're completely freaked out on all levels. Oh, yeah. Luckily, when I went through my um, healthcare problem, you know, I was working for a firm that had um, okay insurance. (laughs) Um, Okay insurance. So one thing um, to remember about medical debt is that it's interest-free. One of the biggest problems people have with debt is they don't want to, they don't open their mail. They don't want to look at it. They don't want to deal with it. But medical debt is interest-free. Don't put it on a credit card. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a medical organization that wouldn't work with you on a payment plan, that wouldn't make an adjustment to accommodate your situation. That should be your first step and your first phone call. They'll all do it. Yeah. And you know what? It's funny you say that because I remember when um, I had a client who had a medical issue and he said to me, I'm in collection. Like I'm getting calls. I'm like, okay, what do you think they're going to do to you? What do you think they're really going to do to you? And he goes, I don't know, but it's, it's bad. I'm like, okay, it's unpleasant. But like, no, like Vito isn't coming and kneecapping you. Like calm down, relax. But I think you bring up a very good point, which is almost uh, to an institution, they don't want you to walk away. I mean, they don't want you to declare bankruptcy because then they end up with zero cents on the dollar, right? And the idea of negotiation is fascinating because even if you look at credit card companies, they want to keep you on the hook. They want to have a conversation. And so often when I get uh, calls from folks and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm going to do this debt consolidation thing or this company. And you're like, wait a minute, can't you do that? Can't you pick up the phone? Well, I, I don't know what I'm saying. I said, but you know your story better than anybody else. You can have a conversation. And I have found that many people who have large outstanding debt mounds can renegotiate. They can come to a good conclusion. Like you said, the doctors, the hospitals, they don't want you to go away. They certainly don't want you to declare bankruptcy, and that leading cause of bankruptcy is a health care issue. Um, and you know what? It's really important that you take charge of this. Stacy, what do you say to people who say, I want to save for retirement, but I can't because I have student loans? I was just talking to some parents about this who are taking on all sorts of student loan and education expenses for their children at the expense of their own retirement. And I could say to them, you know, don't do that, personal finance 101, but then there's what parents really do. And um, when we got to talking and I really made them see that when your kid has kids and is trying to take care of them, this decision now is going to make you a financial burden on them at the time when they need to be financially productive. I think money's greatest gift is that it's, a, it's I call it the money mirror. It can reflect back to you where you're not living and step with your values very clearly. Can I just add on to that? But in, in terms of the actual, I am carrying student loan debt 
and I have a retirement plan that's in front of me, I think the easy, first of all, most organizations are auto-enrolling their workers. So again, if you work for a large, mid to large company, you're probably automatically enrolled in your plan already. And you'll be enrolled at usually a 3% rate. I mean, I meet a lot of millennials, they don't even realize they're enrolled. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. You've already saved $3,000. What? So that's number one. If you're already enrolled, if there is a match, if there is a matching component of your retirement account, try to put in up to the match because there is free money waiting for you. And so when I frame it that way, I think that maybe people are like, free money, I'm in. And then you do exactly what we've been talking about, which is then you prioritize, then you keep working through your student loans. Look, I believe that the student loan issue in this country is I will drop a little Yiddish, so I'm not going to curse, but it's like a Shonda. It's like the shame of this country. We are burdening ourselves multi-generationally with the amounts of debt that it's just ridiculous. And, you know, we can all prattle along around the statistics, but but there is a problem. And and it's not going to be sustainable under the current system. I think we're the la- I think the last Fed report is 1.6 trillion in outstanding student loan debt, and two thirds belonging to women. Two thirds belonging to women, and I think half of it is actually small dollars. It's something like less than twenty thousand dollars per loan, which means that even if you just wiped out the debt for anyone who earned who uh, assumed less than twenty thousand dollars, half the problem would go away because a lot of those people couldn't finish school, right? So that's what we know. It's like the that's the pernicious part of student loan debt. It's one thing for your husband to graduate; he has a degree and he has a career, but to go through two and a half years, have the debt and nothing to show for it—that's the worst. For sure. So what's one thing people can do to get out of debt today? Give us one step, one action item. The first step is you have to face your numbers. If you don't know the information, you can't make an actionable plan that's actually going to get you anywhere. So the very first thing you can do today, pause the podcast, pull up a spreadsheet, pull all of your numbers. That's really what provides the information to create the attack plan. That was my first step. I'm like that. Okay, let's do step two. Once you have the information, I think you really have to have a conversation with yourself that you're going to do this and that you can do this. And this, uh, I think, Stacey, your message is so spot on, which is we're very defeatist often when we have these what seem to be insurmountable goals. And all we're asking you to do is you get that number, you get your numbers together, you say, you know what? The first thing I can do after I have this is to set an auto pay from my checking account to this credit card account of $10 more a month than the minimum. Just just start it right there. And that's your 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 second step. Do something actionable and try to cut yourself some slack. It didn't happen all at once. It's not going to be eradicated all at once. So there's step two. You're in for step three. I say technology to the rescue. I've come across stories of people being helped by, I can't believe what's how innovative some of these companies are being. They're providing solutions where public and private sector have failed. And I, I actually met a, um, an African-American woman, Sharita Humphrey, who um, was homeless, 342 credit score. And she, it was, it, she found this app called Self, which essentially gives you a loan, small loan, unless you make small payments back to yourself over two years. They hold it in a CD. So at the end of that time, her credit 
she was building credit because that you know pay on time payment is thirty five percent of your credit score. She was building credit and saving money. So she's now in the 800 Club, and she um, shares her story and teaches financial education. But what a lot of people don't realize is those steps, all those long steps from 342 to 800 improved her credit profile. So an employer looks at your credit profile. They're not looking at your credit score. And the fact that companies saw that she was trying really helped her a lot. I think people really have to utilize technology and be careful what's out there, but I think tech is providing the answers that we haven't been able to find in the past. Time now for your secrets. I'm Jill Celeste, your host of the Jill on Money podcast, and my money secret is that I love side hustles, and I have a lot of them, and I save every single nickel that I make from a side hustle outside of like my main job at CBS News. I'm Stacy Tisdale, and like Jill Schlesinger, I am a side hustle junkie, multiple stream of income junkie. And how that works really cool is I'm also an investment app junkie. I'm Erin Lowry, and I budget for my lattes. I love to have a latte, so it's a line item and something that I will put money aside to get. Be sure to check out more episodes of Secrets of Wealthy Women on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.